With that, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, where we'll spend our time today. And as you turn there, let me ask you a Bible trivia question, which is always fun and insightful to ask. Um, But the question is, what was the first sin that ultimately brought about the fall and brought about this fallen world? What was the first, very first sin? I didn't even finish my question. Uh, (laughs) I was going to say, is it selfishness? Yes, you're right. It was pride. You're exactly right. It was pride. Even before Adam and Eve fell, I don't know if you were thinking about it in Eve, but even before Adam and Eve fell, there was Lucifer who fell. And his sin is identified as pride, which we can see in 1 Timothy 3.6. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they describe a wicked human king and they describe Lucifer behind this king. And they say that the sin for which they fell is pride. And they describe pride as an attempt to take the place of God. So listen to Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, which speaks about this king and about Lucifer behind this king. And God says about this king and Lucifer, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then in Ezekiel 28.2, this description continues, and God says in that passage about Lucifer and about the king, he says, your heart is lofty, and you have said, I am a God. The sin that has brought about the demise of so many people, the sin that brought about the demise of Lucifer and then ultimately this world is the sin of pride. And like I said, it's an attempt to replace God. And so now you can think about the fall of Adam and Eve. The serpent who tempted Adam and Eve is that Lucifer who wanted to become God. And how did he try to tempt Eve, Adam and Eve? He said, if you eat of this fruit you will become like God. Exactly what he was trying to do. This sin of pride ultimately cast this entire world into this fallenness of sin. And so then when you think about the Ten Commandments that God gave, the very first commandment that God said was, you shall have no other gods before me. And that includes making yourself into God or trying to replace God because that's exactly what pride is. It's elevating yourself and putting yourself in the place of God instead of worshiping God, instead of giving glory to God. But God said in Isaiah 42, I will not give my glory to another. And in James 4, 6, James continues God's warning against the proud And he says there, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's exactly what Daniel chapter 4 is about. Nebuchadnezzar became proud. He He thought that he was this great ruler of Babylon. So God, in response, turned him into a madman who acted like an animal and who ate grass for seven years. And so why did God do this? Why did God humble Nebuchadnezzar in this way? The chapter answers this four different times. Verses 17, 25, 32, and 34, it says that God did this so that Nebuchadnezzar and all the living would know that God is the most high God. God humbles and restores Nebuchadnezzar so that all the living may know that the most high God is God. Now, this message clearly applies to major rulers in the world like Hitler or Stalin or Putin or Trump or even Biden, right? It clearly applies to all of those rulers because they have power, so they think they're in charge, but it's God who's in charge. But this principle also applies to us little people who have no power. Now, for some reason, even though we're nobody, 
somehow we persuade ourselves that we're somebody. We achieve something small and then we think that we're something all of a sudden. Amen, somebody said that. (laughs) Well, because that is the truth, because that is reality, that's how we think. God reminds us in this testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's life that the Most High is God. And we see, we see this principle in Nebuchadnezzar's experience as he went from being a great king to being an animal and then to acting like an animal and then being restored. And so in this chapter, we'll see Nebuchadnezzar's recognition that the Most High is God. Then we see this come out in the reception of the dream that he receives, in the recitation of the dream, the revelation of the dream, where Daniel explains what it is, realization of the dream, and ultimately the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, curiously, the story begins with the very end, with Nebuchadnezzar's recognition or his confession that God is the most high God. This takes place about 30 years or so after the fiery furnace, which we heard about last week. So about 35 years after Daniel comes to uh, Babylon. So at this point, if he was 15, when he came 35 years later, he's about 50 years old. And Nebuchadnezzar begins this story with the end. The beginning is how Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and then he loses his mind. But the end is where he recognizes that God is the most high God. And that's where it begins. So the question is, why does he start at the end? When you read a book, you don't start at the end. You start at the beginning. Some of you guys are squinting at me. You start at the end. You peek at the end because you want to see what happens in the end. Well, why, why do we do that? Why do you do that besides the fact that you're sinners? Why do, you, why do, you guys, why do we do that sometimes? Because we're eager to see what happens in the end. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He says, I want to tell you the testimony of my life, but before I get into all of the details, I'm going to tell you what happened in the end. I'm going to tell you what I learned in the end. And what I learned is that God is the most high God. He's so eager to share this truth with all of his empire and with everyone who hears this story going forward. So look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue that inhabit all the earth, may your peace abound. Nebuchadnezzar begins his testimony, and he wants everyone to hear this. Verse 2, he says, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not a prophet. He was not even an Israelite, right? And yet his testimony somehow gets into the scriptures. And the reason God includes this in the scriptures is because it demonstrates God's grace, how God pursues a pagan, vile ruler, and how God saves him, how God transforms his life. And God uses Daniel to write this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that it is preserved throughout the ages. And so Nebuchadnezzar begins this story by, the confounding, by answering the confounding question. How does someone as great and as proud and as sinful as Nebuchadnezzar come to humble himself and to confess that God is God and that Nebuchadnezzar is not God? Well, he says here that God did signs and wonders for Nebuchadnezzar. Just like God did signs and wonders in Egypt, God does signs and wonders for Nebuchadnezzar here. In chapter 2, you remember that Daniel revealed the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which he himself couldn't remember, and then he gave its interpretation. In chapter 3, we heard about the fiery furnace, where the three men are thrown into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they survived. And in addition to that, there was a fourth person in the, fur- in the furnace, the pre-incarnate Christ. And in chapter 4, in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is about to tell us yet another miracle that God did in his life, how Nebuchadnezzar became an animal or began to act like an animal, and then he was restored to humanity again. And here then is the confession that Nebuchadnezzar makes in verse 3. 
He says, how great are his signs and how strong are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Previously, the king would focus entirely on himself. And he says this in verse 30. He, he says that previously he, fo- he focused on his own greatness, saying, Is this not Babylon the great witch? I have built by my power for my majesty. But in his confession, he says, How great are his signs, God's signs, his wonders, his kingdom, his dominion. And as he exalts God here, he says that the kingdom that he built, that Nebuchadnezzar built, doesn't even compare to the kingdom that God reigns over. Seventy years of Nebuchadnezzar ruling over Babylon doesn't compare to 70 billion upon billion upon billion years of God reigning as the eternal ruler. There is no match between who Nebuchadnezzar is and between who God is. And he recognizes this, and he exalts God. And so he begins his story by praising God, by announcing to the whole world the transformation that takes place in his mind and in his heart and in his understanding of who God is. Tozer said that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And we see here a shift in what Nebuchadnezzar thinks about God. He confesses that God is the eternal, all-powerful, the most high God. And then after exalting God, he then goes back to the beginning of the story and he describes how all of this came to be, how all of this came about. And this is the reception of the dream, the reception of the dream. He describes the reception of the dream that God gave to him so that he would recognize that God is the most high God. And look at verse 4 for this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Nebuchadnezzar was just living and enjoying his successful life. It says that he was flourishing, which literally means that he was green, like plants or trees become green, green at springtime. It says he had peace all around. There were no threats. There, were, there was no war by this time. But then during this peace, a dream comes from God. And it interrupts everything that Nebuchadnezzar has in his life. Look at verse 5. He says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my, head, on my bed on the visions in my head kept alarming me. So one day after Nebuchadnezzar has a typical peaceful, pleasurable day, he goes to bed to get some rest. Well, instead of getting rest, he gets a dream that disturbs him and keeps terrifying him. It says, he says, it kept alarming me. Now notice that Nebuchadnezzar was not looking for God. God comes looking for Nebuchadnezzar. And this is how God operates with all of the sinners, with every single sinner. Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While this powerful and pagan Nebuchadnezzar was living it up, enjoying his life, enjoying the successes of his life, God interrupts his life and confronts him of his sin. And so after he has this dream, to figure out the meaning of this dream... Nebuchadnezzar calls all of the wise men from Babylon into his court because experience has virtually taught him that his wise men will know the answer to the mysteries. Not really. But he was a desperate pagan, and he wanted answers. And the fact that he was clinging to these pagan wise men shows that he hadn't changed at this point he was still holding on to his false religion. So go to verse 6. He says, So I gave a decree to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I said the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. And that's no surprise to us. 
They couldn't explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. They can't explain it here either. And that just shows the falseness of their religion, the hopelessness of their religion. And it shows that God was reserving this, this ability to reveal the dream for someone specific so that the glory of this revelation goes to God. And so in verse 8, Daniel comes in. And verse 8 says, But at last Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I said the dream to him, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you, say to me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar says this, he distinguishes Daniel by saying that, distinguishes Daniel and Daniel's God by saying that Daniel had a spirit of the holy gods. The pagan gods were not known for their holiness. They weren't holy. They were carnal. Nebuchadnezzar was saying that Daniel's God was not carnal, but was holy. How did Nebuchadnezzar know this? Because he had learned this from Daniel over the 30 or 35 years that Daniel had been with him throughout the time in exile. Now, he does say here, holy gods, as opposed to God. And maybe he says this because he still has his pagan understanding of God or polytheism of the gods. But more likely, I think what he's doing here is he's using the plural gods to refer to the greatness of God, which is what Hebrew and Aramaic do. And Daniel knew, or I should say Nebuchadnezzar knew that God, uh, Daniel's God was one God. Because in Daniel chapter 2, when, he had the, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about God, he used the singular God. And then when Nebuchadnezzar responds to Daniel in that conversation, Nebuchadnezzar uses the singular God. So Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel's God is one God, not a polytheistic understanding, but a singular God. And so it seems here that he's using gods to refer to the distinct greatness of Daniel's God, of the God of Israel. And because Daniel's God is holy and is great, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief of the magicians, or we can say the chief of the scholars. Because Daniel had the wisdom of God and he had the answers to all of the mysteries. And I said a few weeks ago that Daniel's wisdom was so legendary that his name came to be synonymous with wisdom. Just like today, if you call somebody Einstein, right, you're saying that he or she is a genius. Well, in those days, if you said somebody's Daniel, that means that they would say that they would mean that that person is wise, like Daniel. And so when Nebuchadnezzar calls the wise men of Babylon, they can't tell him the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar then turns to Daniel and he says, Daniel, you give me the answer. You tell me what this means. And this takes us from the reception of the dream to the recitation of the dream. He tells the dream to Daniel. And unlike the earlier dream that he had, which he couldn't remember, this time Nebuchadnezzar is able to recite the dream to Daniel. In verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar introduces the dream, and he says, Now these were the visions in my head as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. This is just the introduction to the dream. Now trees in Scripture typically or frequently represent great rulers. In Ezekiel Pharaoh is described as a tree because he was a great ruler. In Amos, the king of the Amorites is described as a great ruler. And so in this dream, the tree also represents a great ruler. And so after this introduction, then Nebuchadnezzar goes on to describe the first part of the dream in verses 11 and 12. And he says, The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky inhabited its branches, and all flesh fed itself from it. 
So this tree or this ruler that this tree represents was clearly great and prominent. But the language that is used here to describe this tree or this ruler indicates that this ruler is actually pushing the limits to challenging God. It says in verse 11 that the tree reached to the sky. Well, that's the very language that is used in Genesis 11 when the people built the tower that they wanted to reach into the sky and into the heavens. It says that the tree was visible to the end of the whole earth. This is the language that describes the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah in Psalm 22 and in other passages. So the implication here is that this ruler, he was viewing himself as the greatest ruler, as the king of kings, as someone who rules from one end of the earth to the other. And whoever this ruler is, and we know that it's Nebuchadnezzar, he is challenging God. Now then, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to describe the second part of the dream in verses 13 and following. He says in verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my head as I lay on my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Now, a holy watcher is another way of saying a holy angel. And Nebuchadnezzar calls him watcher here because he realized that this angel was watching his entire life and he was familiar with all the details of his entire life. And so then this watcher, this angel, announces the judgment against Nebuchadnezzar in verse 14. The angel says, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. In other words, remove all of the grandeur, all of the influence, all of the greatness, all of the power, all of the success. Remove all of it from this tree or from this ruler that the tree represents. But then there's a curious follow-up command in verse 15. The angel says, cut down the tree, and then he says, yet leave the stump with its roots in the earth, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. So cut the tree down, but not all the way. Get rid of, it, get rid of its greatness, but leave the essence of the tree. Let the roots remain. And then it says, and put a band of iron around it. Put like an iron fence around it to protect this stump. So there's definitely judgment happening here, but there's also grace toward the tree. And there's hope that the tree is going to grow again because it says preserve the roots. Then verse 15 shifts from talking about the tree to talking about the man that this tree represents. Verse 15 says, And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. So now this stump or this man that the tree, that the stump represents, will eat the grass of the earth with all of the other animals. And this description of the man continues into verse 16. It says, Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let the heart of a beast be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. So this man will become and will begin to act like a beast. And this is going to last for seven seasons, which is, Seven years. And by the way, this judgment is authoritative, the angel says. In verse 17, this edict is by the resolution of the watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. And here comes the purpose of all of this, in verse 17 still. All of this is happening in order that the living may know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whom he wishes and sets up over it the lowliest of men. This is why all of this is happening. Whoever this great king is, he thinks that he's in control. But what he fails to realize is that the only reason he has a kingdom is because God gave him that kingdom. God is in control. He's in charge of Babylon. God is in charge of all of humankind. The kingdom of mankind, it says. Every single place where there is a human being right now and for all of the ages, God is in charge of that. Every single inch of the universe, 
God is in control over all of that. And the only reason that any human being has any power is because God gives him that ability and that position to rule. That's why we can never be proud of the things that we achieve in this world. First, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything we have is given to us by God. Nebuchadnezzar was king only because God made him king. And God was going to teach this great king that God is in charge and that God is the supreme ruler, not man. And this takes us to the revelation of the dream where Daniel explains the interpretation. When we see the revelation of the dream, we again see that all of this is happening to show that God is the most high God. Now, as Daniel prepares to reveal the dream, we see that Daniel shows true compassion toward Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts were alarming him. Now, he was not appalled because he didn't know the meaning of the dream. He was appalled because he did know the meaning of the dream, and he was sad for Nebuchadnezzar. But ironically, when Nebuchadnezzar sees Daniel's response, he actually tries to encourage Daniel. In verse 19, he says, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. But Daniel answers, showing compassion to him, and he says, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was an enemy of Israel who took Daniel out of Israel into Babylon, made him a slave, and humanly speaking, he ruined his life, Daniel still shows compassion to him. Because Daniel was concerned for his soul. Daniel was concerned for his life. Daniel wanted him to be a worshiper of God, and we'll see that later on as well. When I was a kid in Russia, I remember that a uh, man came to our church, Victor was his name, and he shared a testimony how he became a believer. And he said that when he got married, he was an unbeliever. His wife was an unbeliever. And then afterwards, after they spent some years together, then he came to know the Lord. But his wife remained an unbeliever. And many years later, his wife remained a staunch unbeliever. And he said in his testimony, he said, I wish I could just pick her up and carry her into heaven with me. Because he was so grieved for the fact that she was an unbeliever. And this is what we see with Daniel and his compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel begins to explain this horrifying dream, the meaning of this horrifying dream to Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 20, Daniel says that this dream is specifically about Nebuchadnezzar. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field inhabited and in whose branches the birds of the sky dwelt, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your greatness has become even greater and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Now, even though Daniel has compassion for Nebuchadnezzar, he says the truth exactly as it is. Because true compassion is to speak the truth in love. And he applies the dream directly to Nebuchadnezzar here. Just like Nathan came to David and he said to David, you are that man, when he was confronting him of sin, Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, it is you, O king. The fact that the tree reached into the sky like the Tower of Babel, that's you, O king, challenging God. The fact that it was visible to the ends of the earth, like the messianic kingdom, that's you, O king, challenging God. Daniel did not try to sugarcoat or to avoid the truth. 
he told Nebuchadnezzar that he was a proud sinner. But he was compassionate in saying this truth to him. And with this compassion, Daniel explained how God would respond to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. In verse 23, Daniel says, But in that the king saw a watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the earth, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over it. Daniel repeats all of these details to let Nebuchadnezzar know that this is resolute, this is determined, God is going to do this unless you repent, Nebuchadnezzar. Because after he tells him the interpretation of the dream, Daniel calls him to repentance. And God can forgive, just like when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, about warning them about their destruction, but then when they repented, God forgave them. If Nebuchadnezzar were to repent, God could forgive Nebuchadnezzar as well. Then Daniel says in verse 24, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the resolution of the Most High, which has reached my lord the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to reach heaven. He was trying to become a great king, a great ruler, just like the dream reported where the tree reached into the heavens. But here we see that God actually reached down to Nebuchadnezzar. And this shows that it is not Nebuchadnezzar who rules, but the heavens who rule. It is God who rules. But it also shows that it's not Nebuchadnezzar who's pursuing God, but God who is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar because God reached down to Nebuchadnezzar. And so here in this interpretation, Daniel says that this dream, this is in verse 25, this dream means that you, Nebuchadnezzar, will be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you again until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. This dream says that Nebuchadnezzar would live with animals, like a savage. He would eat grass, and he would be covered with dew. And this is an actual condition that exists. It's called boanthropy, where a person thinks that they're a cow or an ox, and they begin to act like an animal, or they begin to behave like cattle. In 1946, a biblical scholar by the name of Harrison actually observed such a case in, great, in London uh, where he saw a young man who was in his 20s lose sanity, become hospitalized in a mental institution for five years, and as Harrison observed him, he saw similar features. He says that in his description that his daily routine, the daily routine of this young man, consisted of wandering around the magnificent lawns of the hospital, and it was his custom to pluck up and eat handfuls of the grass as he went along. Now, he, has, he was seen to discriminate carefully between grass and weeds. He never ate institutional food with the inmates, and his only drink was water. The only physical abnormality which was visible was that he had long hair and coarse thick fingernails. Now, what was extremely interesting to me also was that while he did all this, <clears throat> he always wore a suit. <laughs> so I was wondering, is this where I'm going? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, and he does this for seven years. And this was given to him specifically by God to teach him humility, to show him that God is the most high God. Now, after Daniel explains this terrifying part of the dream, he does end with a note of hope. In verse 26, he says, And in that, in that they said to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will endure your kingdom will endure for you after you know that it is heaven that rules with power. What this means is that God was willing to forgive, Daniel, uh, forgive Nebuchadnezzar. When you confess that God rules, God will forgive you. God will restore you. 
Because this is the nature of who God is. God is a forgiving God. The man who burned the temple of God, who destroyed Jerusalem, who killed thousands of Israelites, who sent many more thousands into exile, God was willing to forgive him because God is a forgiving God. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. But we could say, how could God forgive somebody like Nebuchadnezzar? He was so wicked. Jesus said, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And God not only could forgive Nebuchadnezzar, God was pursuing Nebuchadnezzar in order to forgive him. However, God would forgive him only if Nebuchadnezzar would take his eyes off of himself Look to God, repent, and confess that the Most High is God. And repentance is exactly what Daniel was calling Nebuchadnezzar to do. In verse 27, Daniel says, May my advice seem good to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel was calling the king to confess that God is the most high God and that he must, Nebuchadnezzar must, submit to God. Repent and bear fruit of repentance. This is Daniel's version of lordship salvation. Repent of your sin and live your life in submission to God. But Nebuchadnezzar does anything but repent. And so the dream because of his resistance to repentance, the dream is fulfilled. And this takes us to the realization of the dream. Because Nebuchadnezzar refuses to repent, God judges him, and the dream is fulfilled. Verse 28 says, All this reached Nebuchadnezzar the king. But notice again, even though the dream is fulfilled, notice that there is grace on God's part again towards Nebuchadnezzar. God didn't immediately judge him, God judged him 12 months after he gave this dream. Look at verse 29, verses 29 and following. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal house by the strength of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is said, The kingdom has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. God has tremendous patience with this proud king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he does this with you, with me, with every single sinner. His patience is abundant. When God sent Noah to preach the flood, the coming flood, he sent the flood 120 years after Noah preached. When God sent Jonah to Nineveh, he said, you have 40 days to repent. When God sent this stream to Nebuchadnezzar, he waited for 12 months for Nebuchadnezzar to repent, but he did not. Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his palace, soaking in all of the beauty, all of the success, all of the luxury, all of the glory of his empire, and his arrogance was soaring. Now, from a human perspective, Babylon was a sight to see, and you can see that on the screen. This is just a reconstruction, an image of what Babylon might have looked like. It had thick double walls, 21 feet one wall, 11 feet another. You could even drive chariots in some parts of the wall because they were so wide. The walls, as you can see, some of them had paintings of them on, on the walls of bulls and of lions and of all kinds of animals. And when I was in Berlin, they have a replica of this in the Pergamum Museum. And I stood at the entrance of this gate, of Ishtar Gate, that they uh, rebuilt there. And it is truly amazing. It truly is, humanly speaking, amazing. But Babylon had more. It had ziggurats, like a tower 
huge tower reaching about 300 feet into the air where you would go up and at the very top, you would worship the pagan gods. It had numerous temples throughout Babylon. It had three palaces for Nebuchadnezzar. And it had those famous hanging gardens that we've heard about, right, with all kinds of greenery and just beauty. This is one image where they tried to reconstruct it. Here's another image where they tried to reconstruct it. It really was a sight to see. And anyone who would see the city would be amazed. And Nebuchadnezzar was amazed with himself because... (laughs) Because he was the one who had built it. In verse 30, he said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built, by the strength of my power, for the glory of my majesty? This is another version of what we heard in Isaiah, where Lucifer or where the wicked kings say that I will ascend into heaven. I will reach the most high. Nebuchadnezzar was giving all of the glory to himself. But remember, God said, I will not give my glory to another. And so when Nebuchadnezzar reached this moment of arrogance, God judged him. And you can imagine this. Verse 31 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, while he was still saying this, he began to lose his sanity. He's saying how amazing all of this is just thinking how awesome he is. And all of a sudden, he crouches down to the ground. He starts to crawl around. He begins probably to groan and to grunt. He hobbles down the stairs from the palace into the lawn, and he begins to pick and eat grass. And I'm sure there's no doubt that as the officials and as the servants saw him, they were thinking, what is Nebuchadnezzar doing? But when this word came to Daniel, he knew exactly what was going on. He knew that God was judging him. Verse 33 says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was accomplished and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. But remember that God promised that this would last for seven years. It would not last forever. It would last for seven years until Nebuchadnezzar would recognize that God is the supreme God. And in this, you also see an amazing expression of God's grace that he, God would grant him repentance. But also, another expression of God's grace is that for these seven years, no one usurped Nebuchadnezzar. No one took his throne. This is the time when competitors are killing, are assassinating kings in order to take the throne. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar goes missing because he has lost his sanity and no one usurps him. And God was very possibly using Daniel to keep stability within the kingdom in order for these seven years to pass so that Nebuchadnezzar could return to the throne. God expresses immense grace towards Nebuchadnezzar as he goes through this humiliation. And as he suffers these seven years and then advances towards his repentance, we see the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. After seven years, Nebuchadnezzar confesses the supremacy of God, that God is the most high God, and God brings him back. And this shows that God is sovereign not only in executing judgment, not only in punishing us, but also in reversing judgment, taking away the punishment when we repent. Look at verses 34 and 35. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the, most, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can strike against His hand or say to Him, What have you done? When Nebuchadnezzar confessed God as the most high God, 
he confessed the distinctions or the greatness of God's distinctiveness in two areas. First, he acknowledged that God is eternal, that he lives forever. And secondly, he acknowledged that God is supreme, that he is the most high God. Now, in describing the eternality of God, Nebuchadnezzar says that God lives forever. This is the typical address that Nebuchadnezzar would receive to him. But now he's taking this and he's attributing this to God, whom he is now confessing as God. And he's saying that God lives forever. And then in describing the supremacy of God, Nebuchadnezzar says that God is the most high. Now, all of his life as king, Nebuchadnezzar believed that he was the most important human being. He was the greatest king ever, that he was something. But now, in verse 35, you can see this. He makes this astounding statement, and he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. If you think you're something, Nebuchadnezzar has a word for you. You're nothing. And if somebody has ever insulted you to your your face and said that you're nothing, they're right. (laughs) The thing is that they're also nothing. Right? So you're nothing and they're nothing. That's something, isn't it? (laughs) Now, of course, people are created in the image of God, and we are bearers of God's image. But in comparison to the supremacy of God, to the greatness of God, Nebuchadnezzar declares that humans are accounted as nothing. God is the one who decides what will happen. And Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 35 that no one can prevent what God does. And when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this, God then restores him to, the, to his kingdom. Look at verse 36. At that time, my knowledge returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were returned to, to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my high officials and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my kingdom, and extraordinary greatness was added to me. So not only was God gracious to Nebuchadnezzar in returning his reason to him, God also returned his kingdom to him with even more greatness than he had before. God demonstrated this grace toward Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that God is the most high God. Well, I think a good place for us to conclude is where Nebuchadnezzar concludes. Nebuchadnezzar makes a full circle in his testimony, and he ends where he began by declaring that God is the most high God. And this declaration is what makes me think that he is truly saved. In verse 37, in addition to everything that we have just said, in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So first of all, as we look at this confession, for Nebuchadnezzar, this was a personal experience because he says, I praise, exalt, and honor God. Secondly, this was an ongoing experience because when he says, I praise, exalt, and honor God, he's using verbs that convey an ongoing action. He's using participles. So he's literally saying, I am praising, exalting, and honoring God. This was an ongoing experience for him. Thirdly, he confessed God as Lord and as Master because he referred to him as the King of Heaven. Nebuchadnezzar had viewed himself as the greatest king of the earth, but now he sees someone greater. He sees the King of Heaven, and he acknowledges this. Fourthly, he confessed God as perfect, And as judge, because he says here that God's works are true or perfect, and his ways are just, which comes from the word to judge, meaning that God judges justly. And finally, this was a humbling experience for Nebuchadnezzar. It humbled him. Because when he says that God is able to humble those who walk in pride, he's referring to himself. 
He's talking about his own experience. And so he's confessing what James would say much, much later in James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The reason that Nebuchadnezzar experienced his humiliation and his restoration was so that, as verse 17 says, all the living, including Nebuchadnezzar, may know that the Most High is God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. As we look at this testimony, Lord, of a wicked king, of a wicked ruler, Lord, we can only think of ourselves that we too are wicked. Lord, we are blackened by sin, and we deserve hell. We deserve judgment and punishment, eternal punishment. And Lord God, you sent your son to the cross to take our sin, to suffer the wrath that we deserve, and Lord, to give us salvation, to give us eternal life. Lord, to restore us, to give us a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that even as for those who are believers, even as believers, that we would continue to recognize you as the most high God in every element of our lives. Lord, for those who are not believers here, I do ask that you would convict them, or that you would confront them of their sin, and that they would see that they need to declare that you are God and there is no other. Lord, they are not God, and until they repent, they are acting like God. Lord, I pray that we would remember this, that we would contemplate on this, Lord, and that this would affect our lives. Lord, I praise you, and I worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen.